chapter 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I have been accused of talking too fast a few times, and I know sometimes it's hard to cover or it's hard to record all the notes, and I'm glad they're going to make copies. So um, I will provide the notes for the lessons today to uh, David, and he can have those copies. Someone can have those copies by Wednesday night. If you'd like a copy of those, I also uh, always offer to email the lessons to you if you prefer that. Some have already given me your email, and I'll be happy to do that. And another thing that I'll be, I will do tonight is uh, I believe in Bible marking, and I know a number of you have been marking in your Bibles today. And I have, through the years, made a lot of notes in this copy of the Bible. And I will leave it up here on the table after the service tonight. And you can take a picture with your phone if you want to, of any pages you want to. But I would encourage you, if you want the material we've been covering today and more than we've gotten to, uh, to copy the, the interior pages at the front of the Bible, those that, uh, you know, the blank pages and the pages where the uh, books of the Bible are listed. There's a lot of information there. And also between the Testaments, some of the material we've covered is on the pages, the page after the Old Testament and on the inside just before Matthew 1. So you'll be, you'll be, I'll be happy for you to do that. And then you, once you have a picture, you can take, take that and transfer any information you want. It's good to be with David and Kelly again. David and I were roommates at Faulkner University back in the prehistoric days, a long time ago. Uh, we moved to, went to Faulkner, both transferred there at the same time, ended up being roommates, and have been fast friends ever since. I don't know a finer person in the world than David, and I feel the same way about Kelly. I knew them before they were together back at Faulkner, and uh, they have just always been an encouragement wherever they've been to me, but also to churches and I know you're happy to have them here, and um, they've just done a marvelous job wherever they've been. They've got wonderful kids, and I think the world of them. All right, let's talk about the rest of the 4,000 years tonight. There are 4,000 years covered in the Bible. Usher dates the creation at 4,004 B.C. The Jewish calendar would date it about 3910 B.C., so you're looking at about 4,000 years uh, based on the genealogical records that you have in Genesis 5, Genesis 10, and some other references in other places. And uh, so, so you can look at the Old Testament then in round numbers as 4,000 years. And then the New Testament, about 100 years. And if you wanted to take the different segments of the New Testament, the book of Matthew covers about 34 years, one year before Jesus was born, because it begins, of course, with the request of Mary, the strangest request God ever made of any person, will you have a baby for me? To Mary, who was probably about 13 years old, 14 maybe, that was usually when Jewish girls would be betrothed at that time. And she said, the handmaid of the Lord, she was willing to do it. So the Holy Spirit overpowered her, somehow implanted the seed in the human wound, womb of the eternal God, the Word, John 1, and that Word grew within her. She gave birth nine months later, 40 weeks later, at some point about that period of time. So you have about 34 years. Jesus lived to be 33 years of age at that one year. You have about 34 years in the Gospel accounts. Then the book of Acts covers uh, 33 years, about 30 years, 
maybe 33, but from A.D. 33 when the church began, that first generation of the church to A.D. 63. So now you're, you're up to about 65 years. Then the balance of the New Testament, that some of it goes back into that same history, but some of it beyond that history. So you have the, the epistles and the prophecy section of the New Testament. Most would date the book of Revelation about A.D. 95. So, about 100 years. So, 4,000 years Old Testament, 100 years New Testament, and that 100 years is the most important century in the history of the world because you have the Savior of the world offering Himself, the Gospel being given, the church being established, and the Gospel going out to the, to the then known world. And that's the summary of the years of the Bible. But what we're doing is breaking that down into these three dispensations. The patriarchal dispensation, when God spoke directly to the, to the patriarchs, there was no written law, and that message then was communicated to their descendants. Then Mo, the Mosaic dispensation, where you have God revealing His will in written form, giving to Moses. Moses wrote much of the Bible. In fact, I became curious about who wrote more of the Bible than anybody else, so I researched this uh, recently. Moses wrote 125,139 words of the Bible. That's more than twice what anybody else wrote. 125,139 words. I'm going to round off the others, but here are the top five. The second um, most prolific writer of the, New Test- of, the, of the whole Bible was Ezra, who wrote 43,000 words. Then Paul in the New Testament, assuming he wrote Hebrews, 39,000, Luke, 37,000, um, then maybe Nehemiah was last, I think. So there you have the list. And it reverses if, Luke, if, Matthew, if Paul did not write Hebrews, then Luke jumps him in the list, but they're about the same either way. Alright, now let's go to that, and then the Christian dispensations lasted for 2,000 years. So now let's go to Deuteronomy, if you're not already there, chapter 5. And what we're going to do is ask three questions about the Old Testament, that Mosaic dispensation, because it's important for us from our vantage point looking back at the Law of Moses to be able to understand when it was given, why it was given, and uh, how long it was to last. Those three questions, because that comes up often in our conversations with others who really don't understand the layout of the Bible. They don't really understand that the New Testament is the covenant now binding on on Christians. And they go back to the Old Testament to find things that they want to bring over into the New Testament church. And so this comes up often in conversations or Bible studies. Now the book of Deuteronomy means second law. Because back in Exodus when the law was originally given, Exodus Uh, chapters 19 and 20, Moses received the law. He brought it down the mountain, gave it to the people. And ultimately, God said, you remember we said that you had to have a people, you had to have a law, you had to have territory to have a nation. So you have a people, you come out of Egypt, two million strong, you had a law, and now you had a territory or land that they were to conquer. So by the time you get to Numbers 13 and 14, Numbers 13 is where it begins. They sent out spies. They had traversed the territory from Egypt to the border of Canaan. 
Deuteronomy the second, chapter 1, verse 2 says that that should have taken them 11 days. 11 days. That journey ended up taking them 40 years because they sent the spies, one from every tribe, 12 spies, over into the land. They were over there for a period of time. Came back, they brought back uh, samples of the fruit of the land, grapes and pomegranates and figs, so large that they had to carry it on a pole between two men. It was tremendous, fertile land that they were, had been given by God. A land that flowed with milk and honey is how it was described. But when they came back, they said, it is a fertile land. These are the fruits of the land. But ten of the twelve spies said, we cannot take it. There are giants in the land. They have great cities that are walled. We are not able. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And also in our sight, we can't do this. When Numbers 13, there was one man whose name was Caleb, who was one of the spies. In fact, the only two spies that any of us remember are the two that had faith. Um, I, I, could, I could offer to give a $10 bill to anybody that knew any of the ten other spies, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't lose my $10, you know, unless you looked it up, because unless you just read that chapter, you probably would not know any of those. We don't remember people with no faith, but we do remember Caleb and Joshua. Now, Caleb spoke up the first day and said, we are well able to take it. You see, he looked above the giants, he looked above the walls of the city, and he saw God. And he knew that God was on their side, and with God on their side, they could take the city, they could take the giants, it would not be a problem. God had already said, you can have it. So he had faith. But the people listened to the ten. They went into their tents that night, and they murmured against God. God's brought us out of Egypt, and now we're going to die out here in the wilderness. And they murmured against Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and... And God was listening to them in their tents. You know, we complain about the elders on the way home from church. You think God doesn't hear here in our cars? You think the little kids in the back? Now, this is not has nothing to do with the sermon tonight. We just thought of it. So, sometimes uh, parents will come to preachers, and I, I sympathize. I am I'm very sympathetic to this. They say we. You know, they've got a child in college or young adult years, and they'll say, you know, they, they just don't like, they just hate the church. It just, can, can you try to reach them? Now, there are a lot of influences that can come into a child's life, but you know, if we have grilled preacher and grilled elder every Sunday on the way home from church, and they're in the back seat listening, you think that doesn't impact the way they view the church? We ought to be careful what we say anytime, because God's listening. We ought to be careful when our children listen. Always talk positively about the church. Always encourage children to have a, a great positive view of God's people because they're going to be making decisions in their lives about the church. Becoming a member of it, being faithful to it, building it up. We want them to have the best possible view. But God was listening to them in their tents. And one of the things they said was, we brought our children out here in the wilderness and now they're going to be a prey to our enemies. And God said the next day, and Joshua joins in with Caleb the next day, it seems to me, and he really takes a stand. And uh, <clears throat> Joshua and, and Caleb and Moses, they all say, we, we need to do this. Let's go take what God wants us to have. But the people were discouraged and they said, no, we can't go. We're not going to go. We're going to die. 
And so God rendered a verdict. You remember how God became angry? His long-suffering ran out in the days of Noah. The world was flooded. Well, the same thing happens in Numbers 13 and 14. God was generous to them. He was giving them the land. He had brought them out of Egypt. He wanted to bless them. But when they were determined not to have faith and to reject His plan, He said, okay, you won't go in the land. And everybody 20 years old and upward will die. And those children that you said would be a prey in the wilderness, they're the ones that actually will get to go into the land. And they do in Joshua. You know, I figured it up one time. I think they had 64 funerals a day for 40 years. Wouldn't that have been a sad time to live? All because of lack of faith. And what's interesting is, as soon as God said, you can't go, I'm not, uh, your children are taking this like, well, let's go. We should do this. And so they, they decide they're going to go conquer the land. And uh, Moses says, you're not going to be successful. God's not going with you. And sure enough, they were defeated and sent back. But, but they didn't want to do, it, do it when God wanted them to do it. When God said, you can't do it, then they said, we'll do it. But it was too late. Well, that brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. All that's background. Because God gave the law to that generation, but they all died. All those who are old enough to understand the law had died off in that 40 years. Now you have Moses as an old man. He dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, 120 years. And um, he is giving four sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, if you want to mark those in your Bible, you can look at those in my Bible. I've got them in the chapters that cover them. We won't take time here. But the one we're about to see is sermon number two. And what he's doing is preaching sermons to that younger generation that was 20 years old and down, but now they're all grown up. The oldest of them, of course, would be 60 years old at this point. About to go into the land. There is the Jordan River just over there. And they're ready to go. And so Moses is giving the law a second time to the younger generation. But he makes different application to it. The first time it was given, it was for a nomadic people that lived in tents and traveled around. The second time in Deuteronomy, he gives it for a settled people who are going to be living in cities, drinking from wells they didn't dig, eating from trees they didn't plant, vineyards they didn't cultivate. And so there's a different emphasis, but it's the same law. Now, Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments re-given. Exodus 20 is original. Deuteronomy 5 is the Ten Commandments re-given. If we had time, we'd mark the Ten Commandments, but you can do that on your own. Just put a Roman number 1. I'll get you started. Verse 7, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's Roman number 1. And you can go down through that text and mark all ten of those. But in that context, let's go back up and answer the question, To whom was the law of Moses given? That's our first question tonight. And Moses called all Israel, in Deuteronomy 5.1, and said unto them, Hear, O Israel. I circled the word Israel. Thus the statutes and judgments which I speak in your ears this day, that ye may learn them and keep and do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with, with us. I circled us and connected us to Israel. So the law was given to Israel. That is defined as the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Now he had other descendants through Ishmael, doesn't include those. He had other sons too. But it's the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. Those are the Israelites. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Twelve tribes became known as the Israelites. 
The Lord made not, in verse 3, this covenant with our fathers. Now, think about this for a minute. I remember reading sometime, sometime that Abraham Lincoln did not pay income tax. Now, if you learned that fact and you said, well, you know, if Abraham Lincoln did not pay income tax, then I'm not going to pay income tax. The reason Abraham Lincoln did not pay income tax is because that was not a law when Lincoln was alive. He did not have to keep a law that had not yet been given. Have you ever thought about the fact that Abraham did not keep the law of Moses? Abraham did not keep the law of Moses. You say, well, Abraham was a good man. He always obeyed, he, he did always obey God. Well, for the most part, so those couple of times he lied. But Moses, you remember the bigger the number? This will help you a lot if you've never thought of this before. You probably have. But when you look at, at history, at time, at, at time stamping history, you know, this is 2021. 2021 years from what? A.D. and Odomini in the year of our Lord. That, that is, Jesus split time in two when he was born. This is 2021 years years after Jesus was born. There's a mistake in the calendar, but theoretically that's right. Then you want to go back in the other direction. B.C. Now I know people try to get around this, you know, B.C.E., before the common era. But, but you can't get around the fact that Jesus split time in two because whatever you call it, it still goes back to when Jesus was born. But anyway, B.C., before Christ. Now, the, the bigger the number, the farther you are away from the birth. Of course, they did not date it this way. They did not know. But as we look back, let me illustrate this with my body language. Let, let's say, okay, you have Adam. It's interesting how these are on big numbers. They're easy to remember. Adam at 4,000 B.C. You go down to Noah, 3,000 B.C. You go to Abraham, 2,000 B.C. You go to Moses, 1500 B.C. So, we'll, I'll go further in a minute, but you see the reason that Abraham did not keep the law of Moses? He lived 500 years before Moses did. So he could not keep a law that had not yet been given. But it was given to Moses, and those people who lived after Moses were responsible for keeping the law of Moses. So you go from 1500, David is at 1000 B.C. We'll skip some here, but Malachi is at... 400 B.C., then there's four silent centuries between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament. John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness saying, Repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the first prophet they had had in four centuries. Alright. <clears throat> to whom was the law given? It was given to Israel. It was not given to the whole world. Now, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to serve under the law, you could become a proselyte to the law. And the children of Israel were to be a lot to the Gentiles. But the law was given to Moses, going, given through Moses to the Israelites. Now, keep that fact in mind. Now, let's go to one other passage in the Old Testament. Go to Jeremiah 31, and then we'll go to the New Testament. But Jeremiah 31, there's a section that is interesting. Um, you're, we're familiar with shelf life. You know, you go home and you say, I want to eat a bowl of cereal for supper tonight. So you reach in and you get the milk out and you say, 
I wonder if the smoke's still good. So what do you do? Well, you look at the date on there, right? It's got a date somewhere on the top, best used by or something to that effect, this certain date. That's a shelf life. Same thing, you turn the can of beans over and look at the bottom, there's a shelf life on it. Best if used by, you know, this date. Did you know that the Old Testament came with its own shelf life, its own date stamped on it? It was never intended to last forever. God always had the plan in mind of what He was going to do, which involved a new covenant and a new dispensation, the sending of His Son, as we saw prophesied in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 49 this morning. God was working toward a future event that would involve the giving of another covenant. Not like Moses' covenant. And you say, okay, well you say that, preacher, but show me. That's a good question. We always ought to ask that. Look in Jeremiah 31, beginning in 31. Of course, Jeremiah is living under the law of Moses as a Jew. He was a prophet of God, inspired of the Holy Spirit. And Jeremiah lived during the time when the children of Israel had been carried into captivity. He wrote Lamentations, which is a funeral for a city. He talks about the burning ruins of the city of Jerusalem. So that was the time frame when he lived. And Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days come, that's future tense, days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a, what are those next two words in your Bible? New covenant. So not yet in existence. New one. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. What covenant is that? Well, that's the one we just talked about over Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, the law of Moses. In the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, therefore I was an husband unto them, said the Lord, but this shall be, I'm in verse 33, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For, he shall, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now what he's saying there is not that we would not practice evangelism under the new covenant. What he's saying is that there was a change in the way a person became a part of the covenant. Now when you were back under the law of Moses, that law was given to all the Israelites. So when a, a man married a woman, a husband and wife have a child, that child just as a babe in arms is already a Jew. He will be brought up to learn the law. He will be circumcised according to the law and he will uh, pass through his bar mitzvah 12 years where he becomes a son of the law, responsible to the law. So that's how you became a member of it. You could also proselyte, but that was the primary way a person became a member was to be born a Jew. Now here are um, two Christians married each other, they have, a, they have a child, a baby in arms. Is that baby a Christian? No. We hope very much that that baby will grow up to be a Christian. But as a baby, no one can be a Christian. Because they have to be taught the law of God. First. You see a baby under the Hebrew system... They would eventually be taught, but they were already considered a member of the kingdom of God or of the Jewish nation. 
before they were taught. They would learn later. In Christianity, you cannot get into the kingdom until you are taught. You see, you have to learn the gospel, what, it, what Jesus did, who Jesus is, what Jesus requires. Submit to Him, be baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins. You come out of the water, you are added to the kingdom of God. That cannot happen as a babe who cannot gladly receive the word, re- believe in Jesus, repent of sins, make a decision about his soul. It can't happen until a person reaches a certain age. Generally, uh, about the time of puberty, you know, uh, 12, 13, 14 would be when the light comes on as far as uh, spiritual responsibility. Now, let's go to the New Testament. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to find this same passage quoted from Jeremiah 31 in the New Testament, Hebrews 8, beginning about verse 6. What we're going to read here is see, um, again, how long was the law to last? And we're going to look at our, we'll reverse the second and third question since I read that from the Old Testament. We'll go ahead and go straight to this question, which would have been number three, but it'll be number two now. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Let's read a few verses with me, and let's just analyze them. Sometimes that's the best way to teach, is just let you read it in your Bible and and then we'll just talk about it phrase by phrase. So let's do that. But now hath he obtained, that's verse, I'm in Hebrews 8, 6, that he is Jesus. Now hath Jesus obtained a more excellent ministry, by which also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Mediator is a go-between. You have two estranged parties. They're at odds with one another. You have a mediator that goes to one and says, okay, what's, what's, what's your side? What, what do you want? And then he goes to the other side and says, okay, this is what they say. What is it that you want? What, what? So he's a mediator. He's a go-between. Back and forth, he tries to make peace between estranged parties. Now, the estranged parties, spiritually speaking, is God who is offended at man's sin and man who sinned. So we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Only one. Um, 1 Timothy 2.5. Now let's continue reading. Um, the book of Hebrews has the key word of better. 13 times where better is used. So the next time you read through, be- read through Hebrews, put a box around or highlight the word better. You'll, you'll see it just jump off the page. And what he's doing is the book of Hebrews is written to Christians who were thinking, uh, thinking about quitting. I used to be a Jew, and it was easier to be a Jew. Nobody persecuted me when I was a Jew. So I think I'm going to go back to my old religion. It was easier. And Paul, or whoever wrote Hebrews, the Holy Spirit through the human author, says you cannot go back. There's no salvation in Judaism anymore. And besides, what you have is better, 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 13 times better than what you could, go, what you could find anywhere else. So stay with Christ. So, two of the betters are in this verse. A better covenant, which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant... What does that refer to? First covenant. Law of Moses. Very good. The law of Moses was the first covenant given by God. First written covenant. Now there's a second covenant. That's the New Testament. For if the first covenant had been faultless then should no place have been sought for the second. If the first covenant didn't have any problems, it would have never been replaced. 
You say, wait a minute. I thought God gave the first covenant. He did. But how could God give a faulty law? Well, keep reading. For finding fault, I've underlined the next two words, with them. Did God find fault with the law? No. It was with those who could not keep the law. The law was perfect. But when you violated the law of Moses, how could you somehow get past that sin? How could you be right with God again when you did something the law said you weren't supposed to do? Well, you offered a sacrifice, right? But Hebrews 10.4 says, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So that's the best you had to do, had to give, but it didn't really forgive sins. Are you familiar with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement of the, under the Old Testament? Let's talk about Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement was that one day of the year when the high priest took the blood from the people. Well, first he offered for himself and then for, for the nation and then for the people. But he went in and he sprinkled that blood in the most holy place of the tabernacle, later the temple, on the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant and before it. And this phrase is not used in the Bible, but the concept is what the Bible says. At that point, their sins were rolled forward for one more year. And guess what? 365, years, 365 days later, they better do it again. Or they're culpable under the law. But as long as they kept up with that throughout their life, lifetimes, then they could be saved. But, now listen carefully to this. They could only be saved in prospect, not in reality. The old preachers used to say it like this. The, Jesus was slain on Mount Calvary or Mount Golgotha. And His blood, metaphorically, spiritually speaking, flowed down this side of that mountain to cover all of the faithful of the Old Testament. And His blood flowed down this side of the mountain to cover in prospect all who would obey Him in the centuries to come. There's only one Savior, Jesus. Anybody that's ever saved from either dispensation is saved by Jesus and by Jesus' blood. Um, in Luke 9, when um, Elijah, I think this is verse 26, and uh, Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus on Mount Transfiguration. Matthew records the, the deed, the fact of it, but he doesn't record this particular. Matthew 17, 1-5 talks about it. But Luke 9 records that when they were talking to Jesus on that mountain that night, they were talking about His... Now, if you know the next word I'm about to say, then you are an expert Bible student. Decease. Ugh, it's a little morbid. Talking in the dark on a mountainside about dying? About Jesus' death? Why would they be talking about that? May I ask it this way? If Jesus had not died, would Moses have been lost or saved? Absolutely lost. If 
Jesus had not died and shed His blood, would Elijah gone to heaven or hell? Hell. Nobody would have gone to heaven that ever sinned. And all sin, Romans 3.23. So that's why they're talking about His decease. Because their salvation depended on it, just like everybody else did. Everybody else's did. Okay, we continue in the reading in Hebrews 8. The next, verse says, the next part of verse 8 says, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come. And then he quotes from that section that we read in the Old Testament. I'm not going to read all that with you because we just read it. But drop down below the quotation to verse 12. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins, their iniquities. Will I remember no more. That was in the quote. Now verse 13, his summation. In that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old. In other words, the other one, the first one is antiquated now. It's, it's past. It's been replaced by the New Testament. So that's the shelf life of the Old Testament. To whom was the law given? To Israelites. Most of us would have never qualified to be under that law in the first place because we descended from either Ham or Japheth based on where we came from. Europeans, Africans came from two different areas, but neither one of them were Shemites primarily. Now, in the, ne- in the next part of the verse it says, Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This is prior to AD 70. Guess what happened in AD 70? The Roman armies came in, destroyed the temple, burned up the records. They could not have a priesthood. Judaism was de facto, for all intents and purposes, destroyed. Although they continued to practice a, a, a form of it, but it wasn't a legitimate form because they could not prove their lineage. All those records were gone. Okay, let's talk about a third question. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll mention a, a fact for those who like to go a little deeper, a little longer. There are three books in the New Testament that talk about the change of the law. Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. We've already been in Hebrews. Now we're in Galatians, and if we had time, we'd go to Romans 7. But we don't. But here in Galatians 3, let's see... Read a couple of verses. Start with me uh, in Galatians 3.19. Let's ask the question, then we'll read the verse. Why was the law given? Why? Why did God bring the law down and give it to Israel? All these details of what you could wear, what you could eat, who you could associate with, this sacrifice for this thing, this day set aside, this... Why all that complicated information? Wherefore then serveth the law? Galatians 3.19. That's the question I just asked. What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Well, that's a little murky. What does that mean? Well, let me continue reading the verse and I'll come back to it. Teal. There's an adverb of time. Teal. This is back to our second question we just finished. Till the seed should come. So the law would last how long? Well, it would last until it was replaced. It would last until the new law came. It would last until the Messiah came. That's the seed. Remember we talked about that this morning. To whom the promise was made. It was ordained by angels in the hand of Meteor. You say, well, how do you know it's the seed is Jesus? Well, back up to verse 16. 
Now to Abraham. Remember I said this morning that the rest of the Old Testament was going back to Genesis 12. Everything was showing God fulfilling that promise. Well, much of the New Testament also refers back to it, such as this verse. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, those promises in Genesis 12, 1 through 7. He saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, singular, which is Christ. So we know who the seed is. The New Testament identifies it. Now back to that phrase, because of transgressions. This is parallel with Romans 7.13, which says that the law made sin exceeding sinful. What does that mean? Well, there is a certain aspect of sin that makes it seem innocuous, innocent. Here, let's say I'm tempted to do a sin. I do the sin. It's probably a pleasurable experience. Probably no immediate negative consequences come from it. I'm thinking, you know, all those things everybody says about sin being so bad? I don't know about that. I mean, I sort of like it. Not so bad. Well, sin was the same way in the Old Testament. But in the, when, you, when the law was given and you sinned, guess what you had to do? You had to go out to your sheepfold and get one of your sheep. Now, remember, probably grew up on your farm. You probably nursed it or petted it, gave it a name as a, as a lamb. And now... Which one's it going to be? It's got to be my best one. Well, this one's old, and that one's scarred, and that one's got a blind eye. Well, that's, well, that's a good one. That's the one. You put a leash on it. You bring it down to the temple. I'm going to be careful here because it's a mixed audience, age-wise. But I don't want us to miss the point. I used to think it was the priest who ended the life of the sacrifice. It wasn't. The priest held the basin to catch the blood. It was the head of the family that had the knife. That's all I'll say. Sacrifice is over. He's going back home. He's got the leash wound up in his pocket. Do you think he's thinking, you know, this sin's not so bad? No. He's feeling bad because of sin. So I, what I did caused my lamb to die. When you and I sin, we look at a different lamb. The lamb of God. And may we never think sin is not so bad because it caused him to die. Well, our invitation is now to be extended, and I'm going to use the New Testament as a summary of it. And this is on purpose because we know the New Testament better than we know the, New, the Old Testament. I'd love to spend a whole day just in the New Testament. But what we will do now is just look at the four parts of the New Testament and how each of them is designed to lead us to heaven. This morning we held the New Testament in our hands and I said, 
you're holding 100 years, 260 chapters, 7,957 verses. It's an important section of the Bible because it's the part we're under and it's the part that tells man how to be saved. Okay, well you take that same section of the Bible and you remember I said one, two, three this morning, one theme, two, two divisions, three dispensations, four, if you wanted to go farther, four sections to the New Testament. They're easy to remember. Once... Once I say them, even if you don't want to remember them, you'll remember them because they're so easy to remember. 4-1-21-1. You see? It just sticks. 4-1-21-1. That's an outline of the New Testament. Four books of biography of Jesus' life. One book of history of the church. 21 letters or epistles. One book of prophecy. Now, I preached a long time. David probably learned this in school and I just didn't pay attention that day, but I preached a long time before I knew or I noticed this. If a person when they had a good heart came to the Bible and said, I really want to know what to do to be saved, but didn't have anybody to teach him, and he began to read the New Testament. So I'm going to find out what God wants me to do to be saved. So what's the first thing that a sinner needs to know in order to go to heaven? He needs to know about Jesus, true? Yes. So what's the first section of the New Testament about? Jesus. Uh, John 20, 30, and 31 says, uh, For many other signs truly did Jesus impress his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he reads Matthew, he reads Mark, he reads Luke, he reads John. He gets to the end of, the John, end of John. You think he's a believer? If he has a good heart and he, is, he has been reading about the best life ever lived, he's going to say, This Jesus is no mere man. This must be the Son of God. So what does a person who is a believer need to know next to go to heaven? How to obey the gospel. Well, so what's the next book he comes to? Acts. And what's Acts about? <laughs> How to become a Christian. He doesn't even get out of the second chapter until his question has been answered. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2.38. He keeps reading, he reads nine conversions, different demographics, men, women, Jews, Gentiles, big crowds of one individual, all different situations, but they all obey the same plan of salvation. So here he's now obeyed the gospel. What does one who is a new Christian need to know in order to go to heaven? How to live as a Christian and how to worship God. What are the epistles about? How to live as a Christian and how to worship God. How to behave ourselves in the church of God. 1 Timothy 3.15. That doesn't mean kids don't run up the halls in the church building. They shouldn't do that because then we trip somebody. But, but that's not what that verse means. That verse means we are the church of God. We go out into the world. We also know how to behave ourselves as adults. And so now he's been a Christian a long time. He's worshiped God faithfully. He's added the Christian graces and the fruit of the Spirit. He's getting toward the end of life and he's thinking, what's next? I'm going to die pretty soon. What's the last book of the Bible about? Assurance. Brother Johnny Ramsey used to say, and he preached a lot on Revelation, he said, the book of Revelation has as its theme, if you overcome, come over and live with me. So it's a book about overcoming 
challenges, persecution, and going to heaven. May I ask you as we end this lesson, where are you in the New Testament? Are, are you just coming to faith? That's great. If we can assist you in that, we will do that. We will accelerate that. If you have questions, we'll answer them. Maybe you're to the book of Acts. Are you ready to obey the gospel tonight? We don't want you to do anything that they did not do in the New Testament. Do the same thing. You could be baptized in water for forgiveness of your sins tonight. <clears throat> Are you in the third section? Epistles? Have you been living faithfully to God? If there's something that's interrupted that, if some sins come back in your life, you say, I need to come back, I need to make it right. Well, tonight's a good opportunity to do that because... We're all coming to the book of Revelation by and by. Some of us are pretty close. Some of us may be closer than we think we are. But one day we will be judged. That great judgment scene in Revelation 20 will be a reality and we'll be there. And the books will be opened. And we will be judged out of those books. So the invitation is yours. If you are subject to it, and it's really not whether you're accepting or rejecting what a preacher has said or even what a church has offered. It's really what God's offering. This is just the way God has, in His wisdom, chosen to get His message to the world. You're welcome to come. Tonight, we'll stand as we're led in our songs. <laughs>